Welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, a podcast for the politically aware brought to you by the Alliance Party. Content for this episode was recorded on Thursday, February 6, 2020. And a good evening to you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the podcast. This evening, we're talking with Dr. Oscar Lovelace, a physician from South Carolina. The American Academy of Family Physicians has named Dr. Lovelace the National 2015 Family Physician of the Year. Now, this is well-deserved in light of the many years of his dedication to the practice of medicine. For example, in 1988, Dr. Lovelace founded Lovelace Family Medicine, an independent family medicine practice in Prosperity, South Carolina, and in the mid-1990s, he and his colleagues, working at the nearby Newbury County Hospital, brought the minority infant mortality rate down by 68%. Dr. Lovelace has always advocated for health care reform in South Carolina. From 1993 to 2006, he was instrumental in the development of the state's Medicaid Physicians Enhanced Program to, to help lower costs while improving quality of care. The Lovelace Family Medicine was one of, the, one of the three initial pilot sites, and it enrolled 1,100 patients, and over time, the program realized an annual savings of more than $1 million, largely because Medicaid patients were given 24-7 access to their usual physician instead of seeking care in costly emergency rooms. In 2003, Dr. Lovelace was appointed by then-Governor Mark Sanford to serve as statewide co-chairman of the Healthcare Task Force. In 2004, he served on the Lieutenant Governor's Commission on Aging. Dr. Lovelace has served as president of the South Carolina Tobacco Collaborative, which in 2010 helped coordinate the override of Governor Sanford's veto in South Carolina's General Assembly and raised the state's lowest-in-the-nation cigarette tax by 50 cents. And speaking of governors, in 2006, Dr. Lovelace challenged Governor Sanford in a GOP primary. Although the incumbent prevailed, Dr. Lovelace managed to seize over 35% of the vote. Several years later, Dr. Lovelace, working with Jim Rex, the current chair of the Alliance Party, co-founded the American Party of South Carolina. The party subsequently became the Alliance Party of South Carolina. And Dr. Lovelace is currently the state chair for the Alliance Party in South Carolina. So, Dr. Lovelace, I hope this introduction did you justice. Uh, welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, and thank you for joining us this evening. Pleasure to be with you, Dan. Well, thanks. It's, uh, it's uh, with tonight, uh, obviously, you being a doctor, you're, we're going to talk about health care this evening. It's a huge topic. Uh, I have a lot of interest in it, and I'm interested in it for many, many reasons. And I find it interesting that you know, you're a physician in a rural environment, which gives you ground-level insight to the challenges facing rural medicine these days. And you're also highly experienced in politics, giving you, you know, deep insight into the nature of the problem of health care on a national level. So I can't think of any person more qualified to talk about health care this evening. I'm glad you're with us. Well, thank you. It is a complex and it's a big, big problem, but most importantly, it's extremely important to each and every one of us living in uh, America and all human beings in the world. Yeah, well, it's <clears throat> it's a central issue for everybody, I think. And um, I, I'd like to just sort of you know, start into uh, something here. We, there's been a lot of discussion recently about this Medicare for all, and I actually think that term means different things to different people, and um, and we've seen how the you know the various Democratic presidential candidates have been sort of you know promoting their own individual versions, and so as a rural physician who's you know also very familiar with politics, as dysfunctional as it may be, um, you must have some perspective on Medicare for all. Could you give us some of your viewpoints? Sure. Um, I think you're exactly right. Um, it's important to understand what, what that does mean. And obviously, there's a national movement of citizens all across America, many of, of whom are physicians who strongly believe that that is in the best interest of our nation. And um, certainly continue to do, continue, continuing to do what we are doing now is not the answer. So let me just back up and say, that Medicare is a program that was started in 1965 by the federal government, and, and it is the program that provides health insurance for citizens that are over age 65 um, and those citizens who are disabled. So Medicare is distinguished from Medicaid in that in order to qualify for Medicare, you either must be disabled or elderly. 
and Medicaid, you qualify based on your uh, income, meaning that you have to be poor in order to get Medicaid. Mm -hmm. The other distinction I would like to make is that Medicare is a federal program. And while Medicaid was founded at the same time in 1965, it is a joint federal and state program. And basically, federal funds flow into Medicaid based on economic indicators that are individual to each state in America. So the federal match in New York State would be would not be as high as the federal match in Mississippi, where the average uh, citizen's income is much lower. So the federal poverty level is what drives the Medicaid match, but Medicaid and Medicare are two very separate and distinct programs. Medicare is a federal program. Medicaid is a joint federal and state funded and administered program. So if, if um, when people talk about Medicare for all, are they, would this be to the exclusion of Medicaid? I suppose if everybody has Medicare coverage that they wouldn't need that's, Medicaid that's, anymore? That's exactly right. Everyone in America would be covered under the Medicare program. And to, to just frame this for you, in uh, a recent study looking back at 2017, you know, really solid figures, the United States spent $3.24 trillion, so three and a quarter trillion dollars on personal health care. And that was about 17% of our GDP. Now, the sad thing is that about 9% of South Care, uh, excuse me, of United States residents have no insurance. And 26% are under, underinsured. They're unable to access care needed because of a really high cost. Now, when we compare that to other high-income countries, they spend, on average, about 40% less per person and, sadly, have better health outcomes. So that is what is driving this, Dan, that we are spending so much more than other nations, but if you look at major quality indicators like maternal, and I didn't say infant this time, I said maternal mortality, we are far below those other high-income countries. We are, in America, you're more likely to die in childbirth than you are in pretty much every uh, developed country. America is one of, sadly, one of the few nations in the world where maternal mortality is increasing. Hmm. So this this number three point two four trillion. Um, I mean that just <clears throat> that really kind of throws me off because that's really roughly about ten thousand dollars per person. Does that for, for every man, exactly. woman, and child? So does that mean that um, that it, does this include insurance? Because sometimes you know when I read these numbers, I, I see insurance costs being conflated with healthcare costs. Is this how yeah, much we're I think, paying I out? think that's the total that's the total cost that um, that we're we spend on our own health care. That's that's everything. Insurance costs, out of pocket costs, everything. If you averaged out, um, there was a uh, Regina Herslinger, a former director of uh, Health and Human Services, uh, wrote a book called um, Who Killed Healthcare. And in the very first chapters of that book, she states that America spends more on health care than the gross domestic product of China. Now, that, that book has been out a little while, but that's why this is such a significant issue, yeah. that we are spending so much money and, and doing so so inefficiently um, that we have got to do a better job. We've got to be better stewards of the public healthcare dollar, and we need to be better stewards of the private healthcare dollar. And, and I'll, I will just say that, um, in my opinion, the concept of Medicare for all, where the, where the federal, government, federal government becomes the payer of healthcare, I believe will produce better public health outcomes. And we can look at the Medicare program to understand that. And here's what I want to say about that. Mm -hmm. When people are interviewed and asked the question, do you like Medicare 
better than your private health insurance, the figure is about 85 to 90 percent of people, based on the studies that I've seen, say that they prefer Medicare over their private health insurance. You might say, well, why is that? Well, number one, if you have Medicare, when your doctor wants to perform a test on you, it is very unlikely that he's got to go through this painful process of prior authorization in order to get necessary testing for you. So number one, when you go see your doctor, you are able to generally get more expeditious arrangement of diagnostic testing. Number two, Medicare, as of the passage of the Affordable Care Act, now covers a preventive annual exam for all people on Medicare. So Medicare has embraced preventive care by providing an annual physical. They have embraced uh, vaccinations, which have a huge impact on keeping all of us healthy, Mm -hmm. uh, by covering those things without a copay that they wish to incentivize for the public good. And many of us um, who have been in other private health insurance plans have not been able to capture those kind of prevented benefits to improve our, our life. Medicare has been blazing the trail for covering colonoscopy and other tests that are recommended by the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force and, and the private health insurance industry has been lagging far behind. Of course, the um, Affordable Care Act did mandate that private insurance companies start to cover this, but we can see evidence that this may be uh, being chipped away with uh, some of the things that are happening now uh, with trying to seek to, to tear apart the Affordable Care Act. Yeah. Yeah, it, it kind of uh, confuses me because a lot of people talk about you know having – um, being able to maintain uh, their current coverage if they're happy with their current coverage. But I, I, to me, it's, it's sort of a moot point after a while because if everybody has available Medicare for all, um, I just can't imagine wanting to hang on to private insurance to, you know, um, uh, maybe for a period of time for transitionary purposes. But um, for the long term, I just think that... Um, practically reason it makes business sense you know if you're if you're say a business employer or something and you you have the option of paying for insurance a private insurance company to take care of every people or just let medicare for all um move in and take over i just can't imagine why anybody would want to hang on to it but um i well based based on um i'll, I'll just say two things uh, some of the economic analyses that have been done for medicare for all um out of the university of massachusetts a study that came out in no, on November 30 of 2018 um, from the Political Economy uh, Research Institute basically showed that uh, Medicare for All would, would reduce health care spending in the United States by about 10 percent, and it would decrease health care spending between 3 to 14 percent um, of the income for middle-income families with a small increase for high-income households. So, it would be some cost shifting. It would decrease the, um, the cost of health care for those uh, that are middle income, and that there might be a small increase with uh, the high income households that are currently um, receiving a subsidy for health care. <laughs> and it would decrease uh, about 8% of health care costs to businesses that have been providing health care to their employees. So, um, you know, if, if it will decrease the total size of the pie right, right now, which is, you know, fast approaching 20% of the total gross domestic product of the United States, um, and shrink that, reduce the total health care spending in the United States by 10%, it really is something worth the American citizens uh, learning about and weighing. And if you'll just let me say one, one thing before we move to the next question. Mm-hmm. I think that it's so important for the American people to understand that when the Affordable Care Act passed, there was sadly a recapitulation, a backstep that occurred 
when the lobbyists, in my opinion, started fighting with those who had the better interest of the United States at heart and said, hey, we like this idea that everybody has to have insurance, but we just don't want to have to compete with a public option. Mm-hmm. So, so one of the ways to, to simplify this is to say, right now, if you are a graduating senior in high school and you've been afforded or at least the opportunity for a public education, we have a public college land-grant system. We have a public college and a variety of different public colleges, but it was really instilled in the land-grant system that, that there should be a public university in every state in the nation. So there's always been a public option for education for a very long time in America long before Medicare and Medicaid were passed. But when the Affordable Care Act passed, and inside of the Affordable Care Act was the provision of a Medicare program public option. So if you can understand what I'm saying there, it was basically instead of, if we could just take out the, the last two words, for all, there was, the, uh, there was going to be an option of a Medicare public option. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, under the weight of all the lobbying money that was spent, those people who were cashing in on health care said, we don't want to compete with a public option. And the public option was dropped. Wow. So now what we have is Pete Buttigieg, at least as I understand it, he is saying, I want to have a public option, but I don't want to make the citizens give up their private health insurance if they are happy with it. Mm -hmm. And so most of the other uh, candidates on the Democratic side are saying they are in support of Medicare for all. And I think that you can understand why those people who feel that Medicare for all is the answer, it's because whenever you're trying to insure a group of people, the larger the group, the more affordable the insurance. Right. So... If we design a healthcare delivery system in America that allows all those people who are super healthy to stay outside of a larger pool of patients, and the only people who stay in the public system are the people who are not a good risk, then our system becomes especially more expensive expensive, more cumbersome, and more difficult to administer. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of hard to square, you know, how you could actually support both because of that reason. Well, it, it does become a problem. And I, and I will say right now that um, you may not be aware of this, but under George Bush's administration, and the insurance industry finding, wow, what are we going to do with the graying of America? We're not going to be able to sell as many policies. So we want to get our foot in the door of Medicare. So now there is a product that is sold by private insurance agents all across America and, frankly, promoted by Donald Trump. Uh, and his ideas of the way healthcare should go. Mm-hmm. Our president um, is a is a strong advocate for Medicare Advantage plans. And Medicare Advantage is a program where a private insurance company administers the Medicare benefit. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you understand what I'm saying? Well, it just I mean, aren't they capable of administering themselves? Well, they are, and as you might imagine, 
what happens is the incentive when you're a private insurance company is to make certain that you decrease the amount of payment that you have for health insurance claims so that more money stays there for the administration of health care right. and for those CEOs. So we see the same thing happen when Medicaid programs, when federal and state Medicaid dollars are outsourced to health maintenance organizations, they tend to become very astute at cherry-picking the healthy Medicaid patients right. and keeping the unhealthy Medicaid patient out. Right. Now, now sadly, because of, in, in my view, uh, a profit, you know, a, a profit-based incentive for the insurance industry and healthcare. There was a recent OIG study of Medicare Advantage plans. They audited 5,000 Medicare claims. So this is an Office of the Inspector General's audit of 5,000 Medicare Advantage claims, meaning they're Medicare claims that have been administered through a private insurance company mm-hmm. like like Humana. Mm-hmm. Okay? In 99.3% of those claims, diagnoses were added to the claims in order to increase the amount of money that the private insurance companies received from the federal government. Okay. And according to that uh, according to that study, the private insurance industries that administered those 5,000 claims had built the government for $7 billion. Wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're a private industry and you're trying to stay in business and you're going to maximize your profits and you're going to push the limits. That's unfortunately the story of capitalism, though, right? And, and you know, I guess when it comes to Here's the problem, Dan, that I see, and I'm, I'm not going to tell you that I, I, I've been practicing medicine for 31 years. Um, I'm not going to tell you that I started off with some of the ideas that I, I would share with you tonight, but this is where I am now, mm-hmm. and that is that if we think about our most important resource, is it our bank account? It is, a, is it our college education or is it our health and therefore our quality of life? Most people would say that their health or their family's health means more to them than anything else. Yeah. Well, without but the we health, had, you can't have anything. Nothing else makes sense without your health, right? Right. And so what what we have is a very inefficient, costly system. And I just, you know, there's so many different angles on all of this. But unless we re-engineer our healthcare system, we are going to lose global economic competitiveness, period. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'd like to point out – a really uh, important aspect of this whole discussion. And that is that just like any other uh, program or, uh, you know, education, it doesn't matter whether it's education or, or healthcare, if you want to try to really understand what's going on, you need to try to follow the money, whether it's military, education, healthcare. Yeah. And unfortunately, what happens in our broken democracy, and, it, and this is the reason why uh, you know, Jim Rex and I as an educational professional, myself as a healthcare professional, say we are, we are no longer willing to try to work within a broken system. And that broken system is the duopoly of America, yeah. the, the Republican-Democratic duopoly. 
And what that broken system gave us through the Affordable Care Act was something that seemed very uh, well-conceived, and parts of it indeed are. The fact that a child can stay on a parent's insurance until age 26, um, the fact that, um, you know, you have to be able to to cover or, or there, you can still get insurance regardless of what your medical problems are. Right. You pre-existing know? conditions. Yeah. The pre-existing condition aspect of health insurance has kind of been thrown by the wayside, although there are some some ways that um, I, it's my understanding that that. President Trump would like to allow insurance companies not to be required to recover to cover pre-existing conditions. But anyway, I, I want to get back to when a, the Affordable Care Act was passed. There was a a stipulation in the law that said eighty percent of the premium dollar must be spent on the provision of health care, and twenty percent of the premium dollar, and only twenty percent can be kept for the administration of a health insurance benefit to a patient as of passage of the Affordable Care Act. Now, that sounds like a really wonderful idea, that when you write your check for your insurance, 80% of it has to come back to you in provision of of service. Correct. Right? Yeah. So it's a 20% markup. I want to give you a very specific example of what has happened in healthcare. So once the hospital lobby and the insurance lobby figured out that they didn't have to compete with a public option, the simple answer to their problem of, wow, we can only keep 20% was we need to make the pie bigger. Hmm. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Well, there's that incentive so I'll again. Give you right? the, I'll give you the example of a young lady that works at the front desk of our office. Her child needed to have a plastic tube put in his eardrum for recurring ear infections called a tympanostomy tube. She came to me and she said, what do we do? You know, this is our only child. And I just got a call that to take our child to the operating room in the Urban Center, they're telling us to bring a check for $10,000 because the facility fee is $11,800. What is a facility and I, fee? And I, A facility fee is the use of the operating room. Okay. Wow. And so what happened was, the, in, in my view, the reason that the insurance companies have been complicit and allowed the hospitals to charge these exorbitant facility fees is that they can now keep 20% of a $14,000 procedure as opposed to when I rearranged her her son's um, tympanostomy tube insertion with a private ear, nose, and throat physician who had his own surgery clinic. Mm Mm-hmm. The cost of that procedure was $2,400 for the facility and everything. Wow. Yeah. So, so what, what is going on is the fleecing of the American taxpayer. Because yeah. not only is this, and this is the saddest part of all, not only is the American taxpayer buying their health insurance and paying these ridiculous facility fees, we are paying it for our Medicaid recipients mm-hmm. where taxpayers are providing the Medicaid benefit for patients. Mm-hmm. And I will just give you a, as an example, and I can, I can send you this reference because it's available uh, on federal um, health sites, looking at Medicaid reimbursement for a low complexity visit. Like if you go to see the doctor for a sore throat, mm-hmm. A private practice doctor like myself would be paid $70 by the federal government for a Medicaid recipient. Okay. If you are a rural health clinic, you would have to go through some hoops to, to get this higher reimbursement, but you'd have to prove that 
you're in an area of, of higher need, and you would get $80 for that same Medicaid patient with a sore throat. Mm-hmm. If you went through even more federal regulatory uh, restrictions and had a community board and proved that you were in an area where there's a really high number of indigents, instead of getting $70 as a private physician or $80 in a rural health clinic, you could actually capture $113 for a sore throat visit. Mm -hmm. But if you're a hospital that is one of like the tertiary care center hospitals, they get $245. Wow. And this is how it's broken down. They get $35 for the professional component, meaning the doctor being able to go in and say, I think you've got a sore throat that needs an antibiotic. Mm -hmm. They get $92 for a teaching stipend, meaning they get this from the federal government because they they teach medical students there. And, you know, you could argue, okay, that's good. But Mm -hmm. they get $118 for a facility fee. Wow. And so when people are trying to understand what is happening in America today with why is my doctor being bought? He's being bought because hospitals are able to purchase private practices. And if you remember what I just told you, in Mm -hmm. that scenario, they get $35 for the doctor seeing the patient and $118 for the facility fee, as opposed to $70 that that doctor was able to get in private practice. So there, so just the professional component and the facility fee, those two things added together are about $140, um, see, $118, $142, $152. Hmm. So they're able to go out to all of these private doctors and say, we'll buy your practice. We'll pay you a little bit more. Right. But you won't have to worry about any administrative type uh, problems and you'll make a little bit more money. But when that happens, healthcare costs skyrocket. And more and more patients are finding their physicians are disengaged from their care. Yeah. You know, I, <clears throat> last week we uh, we talked to uh, Steve Kuzmich, who's uh, running for the 24th Congressional District in Texas. And <clears throat> excuse me, he um, he kind of laid something on me, which I was which I was, I was taken back by. And this may have something to do with what you're talking about. He said that uh, the Medicare. Uh, payout rate is uh, much less than uh, private insurance payout rates. I mean, to the, to like uh, private insurance is more like 200% of what Medicare is or some, some uh, numbers like that he gave me. And since then I've done some research on this and found out sure enough, that's, that's the case, but maybe, you know, I'm, when you're explaining to me how, how it's really beginning to work out there in the field, it's beginning to dawn on me that, um, that disparity may be artificial. I'm just thinking, exactly. I'm not sure that this is true or not, but I just, I can't help thinking that that disparity <clears throat> is um, artificial because maybe Medicare is saying, well, you know, you, we, we're not going to pay these exorbitant um, facility fees and we're not going to, you know, we're just going to pay for the medical care itself. Is that somewhat near the mark? Well, well, well what I'm saying is that, is that when you try to understand how we are spending you know, 40% more than other countries, you can understand if we're paying $245 every time a child on Medicaid has a sore throat or a cold, mm-hmm. for, for our Medicaid system, that, that's, there's a major problem. And it's, and it's because of this facility fee. It's a major problem when a mother who has private insurance is told she has to bring $10,000 to the hospital to have a 15-minute procedure done in an operating room. 
My goodness. Yeah. And therefore, we wonder why the um, that number you quoted before, $3.24 trillion with a T, trillion, um, is what we're paying these days. Right. And so um, it's a very broken system. And probably the worst par- part of it all is it's a good problem, but it's the reason that I think the problem doesn't get solved. And that is you don't realize how dysfunctional and how ridiculously costful this whole system is until you're the one with the health problem. And the reason I say it's a good problem is most of us are able to enjoy a healthy life. But once you find out how perverse and broken this system is either by working in it or by being unfortunate enough to be ill and need medical care, you can remain ignorant. Yeah. Until you get thrown in the middle of it. Right. Let's just uh, take a quick break here. We've been talking with Dr. Oscar Lovelace, a practicing rural family physician, who's also the South Carolina state chair for the Alliance Party. We're talking about health care and politics. We'll be back after a short break. The two-party system that we've got is broken. The choices are awful. All we see is lies, cheating, deceit. You could say it about both parties. Neither one really stands for anything except acquiring and exercising power. The idea was to give the power to the people or the people who've given the power away. And that's where the system broke. government and our political system was designed to be malleable, you know, not rigid, not ossified, not always gridlocked. Absolute power does corrupt, absolutely, and that's why the founders set the system up to avoid having concentrated power in the executive and in the national branch. The founding documents are the best, it's the best government so far that we've come up with. Um, We're just not doing it. You know, it's tribalism, basically. If you're not on my tribe, then you're a bad person. You could say the sky is blue, and I'm going to say, no, it's green. I think it's right out of a 1930s era playbook where if you can divide people, make them feel like something's being taken from them, probably pays well for them to make sure that everybody's divided because, in essence, it keeps them in office, it keeps them in power, it keeps them employed. The amount of money that's involved in politics, it is crazy. Ben Obama's a smart guy, but not even he could, uh, he wasn't going to do it either. And I was like, okay, that's it. If he can't do it, it's not going to happen because uh, that's when I knew that the, uh, the lobbyists and the corporate interests, uh, the outside private interests that really have a hand in making sure that our political system doesn't work, uh, I knew that they had won. And I said, okay, third party is the way to go. What I think we're trying to do here is, is to make systemic change. Yeah, we need the right people, but there's not any one person, any one charismatic personality that's going to bring about the change that we so desperately need in this country. Our biggest goals are election reform, knock down those barriers that have been built in the ballot access game by the state governments, fixing the dark money, getting good health care out there. We need more women, we need more minorities, we need more occupations and backgrounds. We don't have set paradigms and beliefs. We just want to solve problems. So we're open books, we're data sensitive, we want data, and we want to solve solutions that help the most people. Let's forget about where we disagree. Let's start with where do we agree? Let facts be facts and let truth be truth and afford people the opportunity to go and find the information they need. We require term limits of all of our candidates. Now, if you have more choices and competition, uh, just like any free market enterprise, competition is going to give you a better product. Focus on innovation and really learning on a local level. Free press and educating people in an unbiased way. Protecting and, and controlling the deficit. Respect and courtesy. Honesty through transparency. Openness and transparency. Transparency. I think that's incredibly important uh, in a number of areas, but especially in finances, so that voters can connect the dots. We want to leave this place in a better condition than we left it for the next generations. Pure and simple. Not just my children, all our American kids. We need to educate every single individual in this country. So every individual has tools they need to succeed in life. Ultimately, that's what we're doing this for, what we can help the American people be, not what we say they can be, but what they want to be, and we'll get our party to that point. We're supposed to help each other rise up. 
enlighten each other and start by being civil and respecting other people's opinions. There's nobody left. We have to do it. There's right and there's wrong. <laughs> nobody owns it. You know, JFK, I believe, was quoted as saying something to the effect of, we don't need to look for the Republican answer or the Democratic answer. We need to look for the correct answer. And that's the types of conversations we're not having. As a people, are we doing what we should be doing? We're back. We're talking with Dr. Oscar Lovelace, who practices medicine from his clinic in Prosperity, South Carolina, and who also happens to be the South Carolina State Chair for the Alliance Party. So, Doctor, uh, when we left off, we were talking about um, um, you know the medical uh, expenses and facility charges and things like that, and how that's affecting the price, the overall price of healthcare in the United States. I wanted to sort of pick your brains, if I may, regarding um, Medicare and uh, pharmaceuticals. Um, Specifically, you know, pharmaceuticals is uh, is one of the costs that we have to bear in this country, and my understanding is that Medicare is not able to negotiate for drug prices. Is that's that correct? correct. Yeah. And um, again, I think that that's what happens in the sausage machine, uh, which we have in the United States Congress. We have all of the monetary influences prohibiting us from having a more affordable health care system because of, of lobbying and, and the fact that you can't negotiate for a, a drug price and you're, you know, the probably the largest purchase, purchaser of, single largest purchaser of health care in the, in the nation is Medicare. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's the, you think this is the work of the lobbyists and the, um, the desperation of many politicians that require uh, lobby dollars and things like that. Exactly. Yeah. It's the minute uh, the minute a, a United States congressman wins office, he he's got to keep making the money calls. Yeah, that's costing us all a lot. Right. Yeah. Well, the VA, I think they can uh, they can negotiate from what I understand, but um, but Medicare is the big one, and they cannot right. negotiate. One thing I would I would bring up is that um, if we look at personal bankruptcy, Dan, it's surpri- shouldn't be really surprising, but but it it's shameful that half of all personal bankruptcies in America are attributed to healthcare costs. Seventy five percent of the people who filed for personal bankruptcy when this the study was done, it was uh, it's been a while. I mean, this this is a study done in '04, but but basically, it looked at, it found out that medical problems contributed to 50% of all personal bankruptcies, and most medical debtors, like other bankruptcy filers, are actually middle class. And that makes sense because if you're poor and you have Medicaid, then obviously you're not going to be filing for for healthcare yeah. problem. Right. Yeah. And um, and the you know the average bankruptcy filer was a was a 41 year old woman middle class with children and some college education and 75% of those people who filed had health insurance at the onset of the illness that actually led to their, their filing for bankruptcy. Well, okay. So let me dial this back a little bit. How could that happen though? Because if they're covered by healthcare, wouldn't that, um, wouldn't there be like a, um, some sort of stop loss sort of plan in healthcare? Well, what what happens, of course, is that um, well, in that group of 75% of people, this is a the author was Himmelstein, uh, and the study was in um, Health Affairs, the the uh, periodical Health Affairs. 75% of the people had health insurance at the onset of the illness. 60% of them had private insurance, but 33% of them lost coverage. So. You know, what can happen is you become ill, and the first year you may be able to hang on, even though, um, as you do know, deductibles have gotten higher and higher. Right. Um, and as those deductibles go up and people have less marginal income, then the cost of their insurance can go up. They, so 30, 33% of those who started out with their offending illness actually lost coverage. But the most shocking part of it all is 
and I've, I've used this an awful lot in presentations, the average amount of out-of-pocket costs that led to bankruptcy was $11,854. It just goes to show you how many people, if you have a five or $10,000 deductible and many people do have, if they have private insurance, have these high, high deductible policies. Mm -hmm. Um, And the average amount of -of out-of-pocket costs from the onset of illness to bankruptcy was $11,800. That should make us all very concerned because, you know, when a person goes bankrupt, that means they don't have to pay any of the bills that are outstanding while they try to repair their lives. Right. Um, and so that has an effect on business as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, I mean who picks up the tab in that case? Because, um, you know, we, if they owe the hospital, say, $11,000 for that deductible and they declare bankruptcy, um, yeah. I mean, what recourse does the hospital have? I mean, does it... To, the cost just gets passed on to the people who can afford to pay for it? Well, I, I don't know if you've seen some of these um, articles lately, but hospitals actually have the ability to garnish a person's tax uh, dividends. Mm-hmm. And so if, if they were going to be expecting a refund, um, the hospital can actually garnish that um, mm-hmm. that refund. So there are there are mechanisms for hospitals now. Now that is not true for for private um, providers or any or yeah any. I mean, if a hospital own, owns a doctor, then they would be able to to garnish their tax uh, refund. Mm-hmm. So, so that's well, one mechanism. And uh, are there other mechanisms that, or is that the main mechanism? I think I think that is the that is the main mechanism that I'm aware of. There, in other words. Um, you know, the, the person obviously who's who's bankrupt uh, and has all these health care problems, then they have serious issues. They can't afford their medication to treat their illness. Right. And so instead of having a person who has renal failure that requires frequent doctor's visits, now you may have gone on to dialysis because you can't afford your medication. And, and that's the other part of the, the reason to, to really strongly consider Medicare for all, because once you go on dialysis, by definition, you're now disabled. And the American citizens uh, that are on dialysis, dialysis costs about $80,000 a year. Mm-hmm. So wouldn't it be a whole lot more sensible for us to keep a person from becoming bankrupt and allowing them to get medical care and pay for their, their drugs? to keep them off of dialysis. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's other medication too that, that uh, people who have, you know, diabetes or something like that, they're oh, sure. in constant need of insulin, which, I mean, that's a whole different story, but the prices of insulin continue to climb. Uh, exactly. Here in America anyway. So, you know, people are going to Mexico and Canada to pick up their insulin uh, for substantial right. less money. But uh, in the United States, it's just, it's just going through the roof. The, yeah, the whole the whole pharmaceutical um, pricing scheme structure makes absolutely no sense. I mean, I had a patient come in my office this week, and he showed me on his phone, which you know, again, made absolutely no sense whatsoever, that he had gone on to GoodRx.com, and for his nine medications. If he bought them at Bilo Pharmacies um, per month, they were $111. If he bought them at Kmart, they were $116. If he bought them at Publix, they were $120. If he bought them at CVS, they were $248. If he bought them at Walgreens, they were $309. Wow. For the same thing. Right. Hmm. Hmm. For the same non-medicines. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, I mean, so, and he asked me, how is, how can it be like this? I said, it makes no sense to me. And and what I'm talking about is, you know, that is looking at, for example, the CVS pharmacy, looking at four stores within 42 miles. For Walgreens, it was two stores within 42 miles. And of course, you know, the Kmart was the local Kmart and the Bilo was the local Bilo. 
Well, um, you're, you're, you're talking miles there. And for, you know, a city guy like me, um, I got a couple of Walgreens and a couple of Walmarts uh, within about a 10 minute drive of me. Um, it's not a problem, but you know, <clears throat> the rural areas, it becomes um, a little bit more of a captive audience out there, doesn't it? Right. So exactly. it, to that, to that end, I, I just, uh, I, I'm getting toward the end of the uh, interview here, but I, I really uh, wanted to ask you just a comment on something or, or perhaps uh, give your opinion on something here that, uh, which I guess is the same thing as commenting on it, but, uh, rural hospitals uh, are have been closing at a fairly high rate over the last decade. And uh, last week I was talking to, to Steve Kuzmich about that very same thing. And um, it, it, one of the reports I'm looking at right here says 113 rural hospital closures have been realized uh, since 2010, and, and the rate seems to be climbing. Uh, rural health clinics, uh, it's even uh, more. I think it's like 388 health clinics uh, nationwide rural health clinics are closing. So um, what's going on? What's, what, what's ex- how do you explain this? I think what's happening is uh, the, the businessmen, the accountants, and the administrators um, are, have, have basically taken over our health care system because of our, the profit motive that is so rich within the health care delivery system in America. And what that has caused is a major consolidation. And it's been driven, unfortunately, partially by this Affordable Care Act provision with their 80-20 rule, because it's allowed hospitals to charge these exorbitant facility fees, which is propping up profits for insurance companies and big hospitals. And so what we have is a big hospital, big business-driven healthcare delivery system, and the obvious loser in that equation is the smallest denominator, the mm-hmm. person and the rural community, and especially the person in the rural community. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's why we have more and more patients, I think, that are upset with the cost and with the quality of their health care, and we have more and more people who are in rural areas that are finding clinics closing and hospitals closing because once a hospital is able to acquire doctors and employ them, the patient loses an advocate, and the system, the bigger these systems become, the less personal they become and they are essentially turning the rural hospitals into band-aid stations until they close. Mm-hmm. That's causing people to drive much further. And the sad thing about it is that um, I'm sure that I'm sure this applies in South Carolina as well as Missouri, where I am. But the rural areas are subject to much higher uh, injury rates. You know, it's it's. Uh, in Missouri, anyways, are highly agricultural, and that's dangerous work. You know, you're always exactly. running into something that, if it's not heavy machinery, you're running into, you're getting bit by a bunch of fire ants or something like that. I mean, it's and um, and and uh, another point that listeners should remember is even in the case of very common conditions like pregnancy, as I mentioned. Maternal mortality in America is increasing because half of all counties in America do not have a doctor that is delivering babies or a hospital that is delivering babies. So if you're on a trip to go skiing and you're passing through a rural area and you're pregnant, you have a placental abruption or your water breaks and the baby's coming out prematurely, that is why... America's maternal mortality is increasing. It's one of the main reasons. Now, there are other reasons, I'm sure, like our, our, uh, the fact that women are waiting longer to have babies and we have a, a obesity epidemic in America that complicates too many pregnancies. But one of the signature reasons that maternal mortality is increasing in America is basically lack of access to obstetrical care, delivery mm-hmm. services. Yeah, that's that's um, that's one of your specialties. I understand. 
Right. I mean, it, we, it's where we've been able to have a huge impact by uh, going to a county that um, when I came here to Newberry County, it had two OBGYNs when I signed on the dotted line to build our office building. One left, so it was down to the two of us. And we were the only two providers of obstetrical care in a three-county area. My second year of solo practice, he died suddenly, and I became the only doctor in three contiguous counties delivering babies, delivered 220 babies my second year of solo practice. Wow. Well, it's just that, you know, when, when you think about it, it seems that being able to safely deliver a baby in America ought to be something that everyone would be concerned about. Yeah. And we should be concerned about it. Yeah. I mean, it, uh, just one person delivering that many babies, it's conceivable that you could, you know, you can't be in two places at the same time. So, you know, you, um, even if you're as qualified as you are, if someone in the next county over has issues coming up, it's not like you can just drop everything and run also. So you, you're really um, I'm, at risk. I, I mentioned that, um, you know, the, the, the other doctor that was delivering babies with me my second year of practice died suddenly. Mm-hmm. I couldn't go to his funeral because I had six deliveries that day. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, and that's something that you 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 can't predict, right? So you right. You, you really kind of feel, you know, maybe um, chained to your office or chained to your practice. Exactly. You just don't know when that, you know, when that's going to happen. So, I mean, luckily you've been able to get more more help in your area there, but um, uh, sad to say that's not the case in most of rural America these days. It's just the opposite. There were some really difficult times, yeah. but by the grace of God, we we were able to maintain, and uh, we now have four doctors that deliver babies, and um, we can all share the load a lot better. Yeah. Yeah, you can actually take a vacation then or something. But right. the important thing is that, uh, more important than vacations, of course, is that people are well taken care of. Right. Well, Dr. Lovelace, I uh, I think we need to wrap this up. We're kind of going over time a little bit here, but uh, I really, uh, is there anything else you'd like to say before we, uh, before we? Uh, I mean, I'd, I would love to talk to you. We didn't get into politics well, as much as I wanted to because we are the Alliance Party after all, but uh, is there anything else right. you'd like to say? I really feel like, you know, we covered it pretty well. I, I just would encourage uh, the listeners to carefully weigh the merits of Medicare for all. And at the very least, America deserves a public option. Um, and it's important to make sure that when these reforms are discussed, that they are truly public options. As I mentioned to you, um, Medicare Advantage plans that have been run by the big insurance companies like Aetna and Humana. The Office of the Inspector General recently audited 5,000 claims and found that 99.3% of those claims, there had been false information put in on those claims and that our United States government paid almost $7 billion that was not justified based on their audit. And, and that's why we have got to, we got to, to care as, as taxpayers about access, cost, and quality. And the only way that we can demonstrate our care is by being involved and trying to make a difference locally on the state level and nationally as we come upon the new election cycle. Wonderful. Well said. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Lovelace, for dropping by tonight, and thank you, everybody, for tuning in to the Alliance Party After Dark podcast. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss any episodes. Each week, we'll bring you interesting topics from the Alliance Party. You may subscribe on iTunes, Google, or Spotify. All content for this podcast is copyright the Alliance Party. Views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Alliance Party. This podcast is a production of the Alliance Party a decades-long movement of fiscally conservative, moderate, accountable, and reasoned independents, former Democrats, former Republicans, and alienated voters who demand that our elected officials work in the spirit of nonpartisanship for all constituents and provide a better future for our country.
This podcast was made possible by your donations to the Alliance Party. If you'd like to join the Alliance Party, visit our website at theallianceparty.com. Drop in and see what we're all about. And get involved. Volunteer your time, make a donation, submit an article or blog, or run for office. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the Alliance Party After Dark, and on behalf of everyone at the Alliance Party, have a wonderful evening, a great week ahead, and we hope you drop in for our next show. Be safe and be aware.